Welcome to another podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. You can find out more about CGI Burlington on our website at cgiburlington.org. We are continuing in Hebrews 6, and and Pastor Watson did give us a bit of review uh, around the book of Hebrews and and what the topic or what the book is about. Let's uh, look at Hebrews 6. And beginning in verse 1, it begins with, therefore. And we know that whenever we see the word therefore, we have to ask ourselves what it's there for. And so we need to back up. And let's back up to chapter 5 and verse 10 and pick up the context of the conclusion, therefore. Speaking of Jesus Christ, that he's called of God a high priest after the order of of Melchizedek. Notice this, of whom we have many things to say. There's a lot that the apostle wants to say about Christ being a priest, a high priest. We know he's from the line of Judah, and so that's his, uh, his right to the king, the, to the throne, but his right to be a high priest is because he's after the order of Melchizedek. And this is something that the apostle has a lot to say about. But he says, it's difficult. It's going to be difficult. Why? Because you're dull of hearing. So this is a congregation that has grown spiritually dull. The apostle wants to cover this topic, and he has so much to say. But it's going to be a challenge, because they've grown dull. For when, for the time, you ought to be teachers. You are the Hebrews. Gentiles are coming into the church, coming into the covenant. You ought to be teachers. You have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God. And you have become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. I've come to give strong meat, but looking at the spiritual state, I realize you're not there. You're not mature. For everyone that uses milk is unskillful. And he said earlier not to neglect this salvation, but you've been neglecting, you've become unskillful. In the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But strong meat belongs to them that are of full age, that are mature. Even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Therefore, because of all of this, leaving the principles of the doctrines of Christ, of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on unto perfection. So Hebrews are pilgrims, we're on the move. Let's, let's, let's not go back to the, the doctrine of Christ, the first principles. Let's go on unto perfection. Not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. Of the doctrine of baptisms and of laying on of hands and of the resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment. And you notice the, even though this is the foundation, notice the progression. We start with repentance from dead works. Then we have faith toward God. Then we have baptism. Then we have the laying on of hands. And then we have the resurrection of the dead and judgment. So there's this progression. And that's the foundation. So let's not get stuck. Let's keep moving forward. Let's keep maturing. It's time to grow up. And verse 3. And this will we do if God permit. So remember from chapter 5, I want to tell you so much about Christ being a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. But it's going to be difficult. But I'm going to do it because we're not going backwards. We're not going backwards. We're not going to lay again the foundation of repentance from dead works. We're not going back to first principles of the doctrine of Christ. You should have that. So I'm going to assume that you're serious about your calling, and we're going to go on to the strong meat. So when we get to chapter 7, he's going to start giving them strong meat about the order of Melchizedek. And so he says, "This, this is what we're going to do. We're going to cover the strong meat. Now we come to Hebrews 6, verses 4 to 6. And if this isn't one of the most controversial 
passages in the scripture. I don't know what is. So I'm hoping I can get through this study without getting beaten up. Because I know there's a very strong opinions on this. And in fact, you know, Pastor Watson was speaking this morning of the Sabbath-keeping brethren, historically, being tortured, being killed, property taken away from them. But it's not, it was not just our brethren. Sunday-keeping Christians were also tortured. And a lot over this passage and the view that people have of it says here, it is impossible. So, so we're not going backward. We're going forward. I'm, I'm going to give the strong meat because we're not going to go backward to the, the first principles. Why? Because it's impossible for those who were enlightened, who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted of the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away, to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. What does this mean? Basically, there are a lot of views, but there are two fundamental views. One, we call Calvinism. The other is called Arminianism. Arminianism. And these are the two polar opposites. And I'm telling you, a lot of people have been tortured, have been killed, have been censured, because they would not conform to one of these views, depending on who was in power at the time. So let's look at this and see which one is right. Is Arminianism right? Is Calvinism right? Or is the truth somewhere in the middle? Let's explore what these doctrines say. Arminianism, so this is not William Shakespeare, <laughs> looks like him, but this is uh, Jacobus Arminius. And what he taught was that when men are born, every single person, every human being, is born like Adam. And like Adam, has to choose whether he will follow God or he will sin. But that he has free will. And he has the ability to choose the way of righteousness. And if he sticks to that way of righteousness all his life, he will inherit eternal life. He further argued that the sacrifice of Christ is not for everyone. That if you choose the way of righteousness and work hard at being righteous, then you do not need the sacrifice of Christ. The sacrifice of Christ is for those who fail. So there are two ways to salvation. You can get salvation through the sacrifice of Christ, but you can also get salvation through the keeping of the law. This view, called Arminianism, actually did not start with Jacobus Arminius. He got it from a monk, and so he, he lived around uh, the 1600 mark. He got it from a monk that lived in the 400 AD period, called Pelagius. Pelagius was from the UK and came to Rome, and when he came there, he saw Christians living immoral lives. And he was struck by that. And so he began to preach the necessity of good works. That you had, to work, you had to do the law. You couldn't just live any way you want to and then expect to inherit eternal life. So he asserted, this is from uh, Wikipedia, Pelagius opposed the idea of predestination. So those who were teaching predestination were basically uh, believing that it didn't matter how they lived because they were predestined for salvation. So Wikipedia says here, Pelagius opposed the idea of predestination and asserted a strong version of the, of the doctrine of free will. He was accused by Augustine, St. Augustine of Hippo, and others of denying the need for divine aid in performing good works. 
So he was basically teaching that man had free will, and if he would only exercise his free will, he can do good works. Augustine and others accused him of denying the need for divine aid. Okay, so I mentioned that he believed that Christ did not die for everybody. This argument of the power of the free will in man did not start with Pelagius. He got it from Plato. He got it from Plato. Plato believed that the body was evil because it was made of matter and that there was a divine spark, the soul, inside of the body that was righteous and that needed to return to its origin, the source, and that man had to exercise his will, overcome the evil state of being made of matter in order to return to the source. This is where the doctrine of the power of man's free will comes from. And so today, Arminians are very strong, very vocal. There's a revival of Arminianism, but it's unchristian. It comes from Greek philosophy. So we can reject this perspective on what Hebrews 4, Hebrews 6, 4 to uh, 6 means. Let's instead consider Calvinism. Calvinism is named after a gentleman named John Calvin, who also lived around 1600 A.D. And his view, he was a pastor and theologian, he taught that man was hopelessly evil, that there's nothing man could do of his own will to be good, that he was just hopelessly evil, he was incapable of doing good, and that the only way he could obtain salvation is by God's grace. That this grace is completely unmerited. There's nothing that man does to receive this grace. It's just God's grace. Unmerited. And it is rooted in predestination. Before God created anything, he had already decided which human beings would inherit salvation and which human beings would be damned. And this is called double predestination. So there's predestination to salvation. There's predestination to, to damnation. This was determined before the world was even created. There's nothing, there's nothing you could do. And so this view of Hebrews 6, 4 to 6, is it, what he's saying is there are two audiences amongst the Hebrews. We're all together, but we don't know which ones of us are predestined for salvation and which ones among us are predestined to damnation. The ones that are predestined to damnation, it is impossible to do or say anything to get them to salvation because they're predestined. It's impossible. And God is sovereign. There's nothing you can do. You cannot resist his will. So this created a strong dispute between the Calvinists and the Arminians, and it was bitter, very, very bitter. After John Calvin died, the dispute continued, and a council was called. And uh, Pastor Watson spoke of the various councils. And in this council, the followers of Calvin stated very clearly what their position was. And if you did not conform to this position, you would be beheaded. And the acronym TULIP was used to capture the essence of their doctrine. So TULIP stands for T, total depravity. Man is totally depraved. He is completely evil. The U, unconditional election. That those who are chosen for salvation, it has nothing to do with them doesn't matter that they're totally evil. It's God who has chosen them for salvation. Unconditional election. L, limited atonement. Because of double predestination, those who are destined to damnation, Christ did not die for them. 
the atonement is limited only to those who are predestined for salvation. I stands for irresistible grace. That when God decides to grant you grace, there is nothing you can do to resist it. You are destined for salvation. You could be as evil as you want to be. It doesn't matter. The, the grace is irresistible. And the P stands for perseverance of the saints, which basically means once you're saved, you're always saved. This is tulip. If you did not conform to tulip, you would be beheaded. This doctrine of Calvinism did not start with John Calvin. He got it from St. Augustine, whom he loved. He was passionately, in fact, he declared, Augustine is entirely ours, the Calvinists. We own Augustine, because everybody was claiming Augustine supports their position. He was a, he was a, a genius. He was just beyond intellectually powerful, this St. Augustine. Before he was a Christian, his mother was a Christian, Santa Monica, St. Monica, and she tried her best to convert him. He wasn't interested. Why? Because he was a Manichaean. A Manichaean is a Gnostic. Augustine was a Gnostic. He began teaching rhetoric, and as a result of teaching rhetoric, he studied Plato, Neoplatonism. And in studying Plato, Christianity finally made sense to him. Plato opened his eyes to understand Christianity. And that's when he adopted Christianity. So he has a Platonic, Gnostic view of Christianity. Let me just explain something to you around this Gnostic perspective. And you can look this up in Wikipedia. Gnostics believe there are three types of human beings. The pneumatics, these are the spiritual. These are the divine human beings. They are the teachers. And then there are two others, the psychics and the hylics. The psychics are by nature good people, but they're not enlightened. They have the divine spark, but they need to be enlightened by the, by the pneumatics. The hylics do not have the divine spark. So in this audience, if we were Gnostics, there would be two types of people here, the hylics and the psychics. And if I was the pneumatic teaching, it is impossible to reach the hylics. And this is where Calvin got this concept that double predestination. There are some that are destined to damnation. These are the hylics. And there are some that are destined to salvation. These are the psychics. So Augustine was this Gnostic who discovered Plato, who then came, became a Christian, and brought these concepts and a very powerful intellect and a very powerful way to reason into Christianity. His reasoning was so powerful, all Christians became enamored, enamored with him. In studying Greek philosophy, he also discovered Aristotle, which is where he got his fundamental doctrines from. So this doctrine of the sovereignty of God, that God's grace is irresistible, does not come from Calvin, and it does not come from Augustine. It comes from Aristotle. Aristotle was, a, was the best student that Plato had. And Christianity is so riddled with Platonism because Plato had an academy, and he taught all the philosophers. So they will contradict him, they will disagree with him, but they were all taught by him. Aristotle was his best student, and everybody thought he would inherit the academy. But there was a little bit of competition between Plato and Aristotle. So when he was dying, he willed the academy to his nephew, and he shortchanged Aristotle. So Aristotle basically went into obscurity until Augustine discovered him. And this is the re-entry of Aristotle into Christianity. And Aristotle was all about logic and reason and what he called the unmoved mover. 
So Plato believed in the good, which was the highest level of God, the demiurge, which was a lesser God, and the world soul, which is the beginning of the Trinity. Aristotle didn't buy this. Aristotle developed a concept called the unmoved mover, which is basically God as first cause. But he is unmoved. Because Aristotle was so much into logic and reason, he believed that emotion was evil. And therefore, God could not be emotional. God had to be completely rational. And so he was the unemotional mover, which is what Calvin eventually called the sovereign God, that God is sovereign, meaning if you are destined to salvation, let me say it the other way, if I am destined to damnation, I can beg and plead and weep and moan and mourn. God is unemotional. It doesn't matter. He, he cannot be moved. He is the unmoved mover. And so the, this philosophy from Aristotle bubbled up to Augustine, up to Calvin. And, and the, this dispute between works and faith, the law or the sovereign God, it's not a new dispute. So, you know, uh, Calvin and Arminius inherited a dispute between Pelagius and uh, Augustine, and they inherited this, this dispute before Christ was even born because it came from Plato and Aristotle. So this uh, Greek philosophy, basically the dispute was when they stopped believing in their gods, Zeus and Hercules, and they realized as they mixed with the broader world, that doesn't, doesn't make sense anymore. They had to do, kind of figure out what is the meaning of life. And they became, some believed in uh, fate, like Epicurus and the Stoics and Plato. Others, um, sorry, free will. Others believed in fate, like Aristotle. So this dispute came into the church, or these philosophies came into the church through the Apostolic Fathers and the Apologists. So the Apostolic Fathers, so don't, don't get mixed up to think that they are, they are apostles. All it means is these are men who claim to have known the apostles. So if Pastor Watson was an apostle, and he was here teaching us, and I shook his hand, and then I never saw him again, I could claim that I knew him personally. And so I would become one of the apostolic fathers. The apologists are the philosophers. So the apostolic fathers, if you read their writings, there's not much there, pretty shallow. But if you read the writings of the apologists, they are profound. These are deep intellectuals, and they're uh, fighting with each other. Come with me to, in Acts, to Acts 17. I just want to show you something here. <clears throat> and then we'll go to the text and un unpack it. Acts 17 and verse 16. Now, while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was stirred in him when he saw the, the city wholly given to idolatry. Therefore disputed he in the synagogue with the Jews and with the devout persons and in the market daily with them that met him. Notice this, verse 18. Then certain philosophers of the Epicureans and of the Stoics encountered him. And some said, what will this babbler say? Other some, he seems to be a setter forth of strange gods because he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. So Pastor Watson covered that earlier this afternoon, the notion that God could become flesh to, to, to Greeks who believe the flesh is evil and to be good you have to be spiritual. For God to become flesh, this is bizarre. So, so they had trouble with this. He's a babbler. And, and teaching the resurrection that, that you, you're going to be embodied even though you're eternal. And they took him and brought him unto Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine whereof you speak is, for you bring certain strange things to our ears. We would know, therefore, what these things mean. We, we want to know what this is. 
Why? For all the Athenians and strangers which were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. This was the intellectual thing to do. You go to the academy, you learn to reason, you come up with philosophies, you go to the marketplace, and you, you, you uh, debate. You, you, uh, tenet, you have table tennis, intellectual table tennis, back and forth. And so that's what, this is what they do. Dropping down, and these people are coming into the church now. And when they come into the church, they become the apologists because they're being laughed at for believing that God would become flesh, that there's a resurrection. So they begin to apologize, meaning to defend their philosophies in the marketplace. Verse 32, and when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, they laughed, ridiculed them. But others said, we will hear you again of this matter. So Paul departed among them from among them, howbeit certain men clave unto him. They liked this and they believed among them, the which was Dionysius, the Arapogite. Can you imagine? Dionysius believed. Obviously some powerful philosopher. And he's coming into the church with the rest of them. And it's really strange because these men, powerful intellects, hijacked the church. And when we go to the councils that Pastor Watson spoke of earlier, these councils are all Greek philosophers. There's not a Jew there, and the Jews would not be welcome. And yet when we go to Acts 15, the council was all Jews trying to figure out what do we do with the Gentiles. A few years later, Jews are unwelcome, and it's all Gentiles who have taken over. So this argument between Arminianism and Calvinism has nothing to do with us, and it has nothing to do with the truth. We basically have powerful, the, the most intellectual of mankind, battling it out in darkness. They have no clue what the truth is. The truth is with the Hebrew perspective. But the reason they have access to the Hebrew perspective is because of this man in the middle. This man in the middle is a Jew, a devout Jew, called Philo. He lived in the Hellenistic period, so he was Hellenized, studied Plato, and fell in love with Plato. Thought Plato was the most brilliant thing he has ever come across. And so he sought to teach and prove that Plato was a disciple of Moses. And the reason he could do that was to allegorize the Old Testament. That the Old Testament is not literal. It's an allegory. The Greek philosophers got a hold of this, and they went wild. They basically took over the religion. So we have to just forget all of this and go to the Hebrew perspective. The Hebrew perspective is very different. Let's look at the root of the Hebrew perspective. The root of the Hebrew perspective is covenants. Hebrews think in terms of covenants. God has relationships with man through covenants. So we have the Abrahamic covenant. That the, the Greek philosophers are trying to understand what is the fate of all mankind? Why, why are men evil? The Hebrews are not trying to figure this out. They know that at Genesis 12, the mankind bus comes to a screeching halt, and all of mankind is told to get off, except for Abraham and Sarah and their children. They can stay on the bus. And the whole narrative is about the children of Abraham and the covenant God has with Abraham. And if you want a relationship with God, you come into this covenant. The Greek philosophers don't get this. They know then there's the Mosaic Covenant. Our guests are leaving us. Thank you, guys. All the best. Our prayers are with you. The Mosaic Covenant is, a, is the Old Covenant, and then the prophet Jeremiah taught them of the New Covenant. So the Hebrews are looking at this verse, Hebrews 6, 4 to 6, through the view of covenant. And it starts with adunaton, impossible. So, in English, word order matters. I would say, Pastor Watson gave the sermon to us. So, because of the order, you know who gave what to who. Greek doesn't work this way. If I was speaking Greek, I could say, to us gave sermon Pastor Watson. 
And I would start with to us because I want to emphasize that. I want to make it bold. So this scripture, the first thing the Hebrew ears hear is adunatan. Impossible. The Greek philosophers are saying, is it possible for a believer to lose their salvation? Can a believer lose their salvation? The Hebrew mind doesn't ask this question. The Hebrew mind asks, is it possible for our covenant with God to be broken? And yes, it is. Yes, it is. God says further down in this same verse, it is impossible for him to lie. So this sovereign God, that God can do anything, the God of Israel cannot do anything. It is impossible for him to lie. Therefore, it is impossible for him to break his covenant. But the covenant can be broken. So we, can, we believers can break the covenant. The Hebrew mind understands this. So we're coming into Hebrews 6, 4 to 6, understanding that the covenant can be broken. God has spoken in ancient times, in many ways, to our fathers, but has today spoken to us. Our fathers broke the covenant. Our fathers broke the covenant through unbelief. And God is saying here, Hadunatan. Adunatan gar tu hapas fotisventas. Impossible for those once enlightened. So there's something that's impossible for God to do. And now he's going to tell who it's impossible. So, that, so something's impossible. That's the most important thing for us to understand. Something's impossible for God. The next thing is who it's impossible to do this for. Then what? So the who. First is photosynthesis, enlightened. Second, well, let me, let me drill, let me uh, unpack enlightened. Photosynthesis means this. To cause something to be fully known, revealing clearly and in some detail, to make known, to make plain, to reveal, to bring to the light. So that's the first condition. There are five conditions. So there's, there's something that these people, it's impossible for God to do something for them. But these people that it's impossible for God to do something for must satisfy five conditions. This is the first one. They must be enlightened. That is that Something, they, they have come to fully know something that has to be revealed. The second, Gusemanu, Gusemanu tu tes dorias, tes apura nil. This means they have tasted, they have experienced the gift from heaven. And this word tasted means to consume. There was a gift from heaven that it's not just taste that it was on your tongue. It's that it was consumed. It was ingested. So the gift from heaven is now inside them. So they've been enlightened. The gift from heaven is now consumed. It's now inside them. Then, and, Kai, Kalon, Gusamanu, Theo, Rema. So this is now, actually, I missed the first one, sorry, the other phrase. Kai metakos genethentas nematos hagio. So again, the order here is interesting. So they have become partakers. So partakers become in the Holy Spirit. So they've actually participated in the Holy Spirit. They've been partakers of the Holy Spirit. And then four is consuming the good word of God, that they've actually digested inside the word of God and the powers of the world to come. That's uh, dunamis mellow. So there's, there's a power that's coming. When Christ returns, there's a new power that's going to rule this earth. And these people have actually tasted it. They have a sense. They've had a sense of what it's going to be like, what this power is like. Okay. Five conditions. They must be enlightened. 
they have to ingested a gift from heaven. They've partook of the Holy Spirit. They've consumed the good word of God and the powers of the world to come. So that's the who. Let's just quickly look at Ephesians 1. You see a, a parallel parallel identification Ephesians 1 and verse 15 wherefore I also after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus so this is speaking of believers I've heard of your faith and your love to all the saints I cease not to give thanks for you making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that same word, enlightened, that you may know, that you may actually know what is the hope of his calling and what is the riches of his glory of his inheritance in the saints. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe, according to the working of his mighty power. So this is, again, is another passage showing that these conditions are met by believers. These are believers, people who've received the Holy Spirit, who've believed in, in God. Let's go back to Hebrews 6. So again, the Hebrew mind, the first thing the Hebrew mind hears is something is impossible. A little bit, a little further down in Hebrews 6, they're going to hear that it's impossible for God to lie. So something is impossible. It's impossible for God to break covenant. He's a covenant-keeping God. Now, something's impossible. It's impossible for who? Those who once, this is in the aorist tense, meaning it happened before we're talking now, this happened in the past. So they were once enlightened. They tasted of the heavenly gift. They they ingested it. They participated in the Holy Spirit. They tasted of the good word of God. They ingested the good word of God. And they experienced the power of the world to come. If If they satisfy these five conditions and then... my way here I just see there's something I I skipped that I want to talk to you about so I'll come back to that so if they satisfy these five conditions and then if they shall fall away so this is the condition If if they satisfy these five conditions and then they fall away This is what it's impossible for God to do, to renew them again unto repentance. So just before we unpack that, let's go to Hebrews 3. Hebrews 3. And verse 7. Wherefore, as the Holy Spirit says, remember, this is what they've already heard. This is the context. So the the Hebrew mind is hearing Hebrews 6 after hearing Hebrews 3 3 first. So they're they're listening to Hebrews 12. You heard Pastor Watson talk about Hebrews 2. They now hear Hebrews 3, Hebrews 4, 5, then 6. So here, Hebrews 3, verse 7. Wherefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you will hear his voice, remember, he's spoken to our fathers in the past. He's talking to us today. Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts as in the provocation with our fathers. So the Hebrew mind is asking, can covenant people lose their salvation? And the answer is, yeah, not because God will break his covenant, because they will. And and in fact, it's a real great study, in fact, is to study the book of Deuteronomy and then read. First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, and what you realize is the covenant 
is two-sided. Pastor Murray, when uh, we had the, the very fir- one of the very first youth studies, spoke about covenant. I don't know if the kids remember when he you know, what is a covenant? And there was this if-then condition. There were a conditional clause. If you do this, then this will happen. But if you do this, then this will happen. So when God destroyed Israel through Assyria, and when God exiled Judah through the Babylonians, he was demonstrating his faithfulness. It's impossible for him to lie. It's impossible for him to break covenant. The people broke covenant because it's a two-way agreement. But God is faithful. And so here, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the provocation. In the day of temptation in the wilderness, when your fathers tempted me. God has spoken to our fathers, but they tempted me. They proved me and they saw my works 40 years. Wherefore, I was grieved with that generation and said they always err in their heart. It's a heart thing. And they have not known my ways. So I swore in my wrath, according to my covenant, that they shall not enter into my rest. Take heed, brethren. It's not take heed, psychics and hylics. And it's brethren. Take heed. Lest there be in any of you, it could happen to any of us, an evil heart of what? Unbelief. This is the issue. God's people, God is frustrated when his people don't believe him. And this is the issue, unbelief. In departing from the living God, the living God. So God has a covenant with his people, but look, they can depart from this covenant. But, and I remember Pastor Murray's uh, sermon from last week about avoiding temptation and realizing we're a community, we, we can help each other. Exhort one another daily. There is nobody exempt. There's not three types of human beings. And there's these spiritual people that can never sin. And then there's other people who have a light inside them. And if I speak, they'll recognize what I'm saying and they'll come into the light. And then there's the damned. And there's this sovereign God that is unmovable, unemotional, and and says, who cares? That's tough luck. There's no such thing. We are brethren. Let's exhort one another daily. Because any one of us can lose our salvation. While it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. And that's what's setting into the Hebrew community. For we are made, what? Partakers of Christ. We're participating in this. If we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast. And that's what this whole book is about. Being steadfast, endurance, not giving up unto the end. While it is said today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts, as in the provocation. For some, when they had heard, did provoke. Howbeit not all that came out of Egypt by Moses. But with whom was he grieved forty years? Was it not with them that had sinned, whose carcasses fell in the wilderness? So this is the backdrop with which we come into Hebrews 6. So we're now going to talk in Hebrews 6, but the the backdrop is this. Our fathers were unfaithful to the covenant. They broke the covenant. God punished them. Why? Because it's impossible for him to lie. And he does exactly what his covenant says he would do. And he said, if you do this, you'll get these blessings. And if you do this, you'll get these cursings. Oh, you did that? Okay. These cursings, because it's impossible for God to lie. That's the backdrop. Then we go into Hebrews 4 which says they came out of Egypt, they were in the wilderness, and they didn't make it into the promised land. This is an analogy to our situation. We are now the community in the wilderness. We have come out of sin, but we have not yet entered into that rest. The same way they were unfaithful through unbelief and broke covenant, that is our risk. Our hearts can harden through the deceitfulness of sin. And we can break covenant. And if we do, it's impossible for God to lie. He will act according to the covenant. So then we go to Hebrews 5 that says, Jesus Christ is our high priest after the order of Melchizedek 
And I have so much to say about this, but it's going to be tough because you're slipping away. I can see you're being unfaithful. I can see you're going to break covenant. So, but, but I'm going to go there. I'm, I'm going to teach you what I have to teach you. You're going to get the meat, but this is going to be a real task because it's going to be a challenge. So know that Christ is our high priest. And now we come to this impossibility that if you have satisfied these five conditions, you are one of the brethren. You're enlightened. You were enlightened. You tasted the gift from heaven. You not tasted. You ingested it. You consumed it. You're a participant in the Holy Spirit. You're in the koinonia. You're in the fellowship. You've consumed the good word of God. And you've experienced the powers of the world to come. If you satisfy all these five conditions and then fall away, the backdrop, the context being the wilderness community, where with many of them, God was not pleased. They fell away through hardness of heart. If we parallel that, then this is, it is impossible for God to do what? To renew us again to, to repentance. Why? Because he just told us Jesus Christ is our high priest after the order of Melchizedek. He died for us. And then as high priest, he took his own blood into the Holy of Holies to present it to God to atone for us. But it says we can't renew it again to repentance. Why? Seeing we crucify to ourselves the Son of God afresh. So, so Jesus Christ dies. He comes back to life as our high priest. He's about to take his blood to the Father for us so that we can be atoned. And we kill him again. Now he's dead. How can he be our high priest? It's impossible for God to break covenant. And so the only way God can receive us is, it, is through the atonement of the high priest. And we've killed him again. So now there's no more atonement. It's impossible for us to be renewed. Seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and do what? Put him to an open shame. The Greek word is a paradigm. They make a paradigm out of him. That everybody's laughing. This man, God, came to earth, died for his people. They claim he was resurrected. But when he was resurrected for them, they killed him again. We're putting him to open shame. For the earth, which drinks in the rain that comes often upon it, and brings forth herbs, meat for them by whom it is dressed, receives blessing from God. But that which bears thorns and briars is rejected. So there's soil, and the soil can harden. And if it hardens, the rain can't penetrate it and it becomes useless, and it cannot yield any, any fruit. And it's nigh unto cursing. There's two sides to a covenant. There's blessing. There's also cursing, whose end is to be burned. But, beloved, brethren, we are persuaded of better things of you. We, we know there are brethren who've lost it. There are Christians who have given up. They have abdicated the faith. They have rejected Jesus Christ. It's impossible to renew them. We're not going there. But you know what? We're persuaded of better things of you. We, I'm confident you're going to make it. And things that accompany salvation. Though, we, though, though I'm speaking to you very seriously, these are, I, I can't be any more serious. These are the most uh, profound words I could possibly speak to you. Even though I'm speaking this way, I'm still confident that you're going to make it. Why? Because God is not unrighteous to forget your work. He's merciful and your labor of love, which you have showed toward his name, in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. And I want to focus now on verse 11. And we desire that every one of you, we're not Gnostics here. There's not two audiences. We don't have the psychics and the hylics, and we're just talking to the psychics. We desire that every single one of you
do show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope unto the end, that you be not slothful, but followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And that word, everyone, is hekastos, and it means each and every one. So everyone that he's speaking to, we desire that you show this diligence. And so exhort one another, help one another. Yes, we have to face this very, very serious persecution. But let's face it, and let's face it together. So let me stop there, brethren, and uh, let's talk. Let's talk. Let's uh, go back to this concept that this battle between Arminianism and Calvinism, this is not our battle. Let's leave this to the intellects who dwell in darkness and call themselves Christians. This is not, it has nothing to do with Christianity. It comes from Greek philosophy. Let's look at this scripture through the Hebrew mind. And the Hebrew mind thinks in terms of covenants. And you will never hear these philosophers as they debate with each other talk about the covenant that God made with Abraham and the covenant that God made with Israel and how they as Gentiles have been invited to participate in the Israelite covenant. That's the reality. And we need to look at this verse that it's impossible for God to lie. He's a faithful God that keeps covenant. So we have a, a microphone here so that the questions can be heard um, and the discussion can be heard when we post this online. So brethren, um, your thoughts, does this make sense? Have I misled you in any way? Uh, are there questions, concerns, other points of view? And I'll just have some water while you... <laughs> That was a lot. Sorry, that that was a lot. Uh, you said. Yes. Uh, it's interesting about the uh, uh, the early church fathers that hijacked uh, true, true the true Christianity. That's right. And uh, that that was a shame. But then again, it uh, it showed us, you know, what the uh, uh, false church is all about. Uh, Back in Ephesians, uh, I think you went to Ephesians 15, but just yes. before that, uh, yeah. Ephesians 13. Yeah. It says, "In Him you also trusted after you heard." Sorry, the let word. me just uh, let me just catch up to you. Oh, sorry. Ephesians 1:13. 1:13. Yeah. Okay. Great. <clears throat> It says, in him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Uh, sealed with the Holy Spirit of, of promise. Uh, I'm wondering who he's speaking to here. Is he speaking to uh, brethren who are true believers, or is he speaking to brethren who are uh, like on the fence or not committed? So I think, uh, first of all, there are brethren, and there are non-brethren. There, there are no half-brethren. Nobody's half in the family. So we're either in the family or we're not. We've either been invited to, to consume this Holy Spirit or we haven't. So this obviously is speaking of brethren. And this is all brethren. This uh, notion of seal, we, we've come into the covenant. So yes, we are in the covenant and we are protected by this covenant. But a covenant is an agreement and it's two-sided. And so even though we are sealed with the Holy Spirit, we can still break the covenant. Brother, can you? And again, explaining scriptures like that, and that's my, actually one of my assignments for the Men's Fellowship. Okay, great. So basically, when we talk, we have to look at the scriptures from the first century in mind, what it means to be sealed something. 
when let's say King would write a letter to somebody else, he would write the letter, roll it up, and seal it with his signature, would only say, we would not protect the letter, but what do we do? It actually would signify that this letter is authentic, it's coming from the king. When you're receiving this letter, we look at the, actually the seal, it would say, yeah, this letter is authentic. So it doesn't say that this seal cannot be broken. This seal can be broken. Just like any seal of the letter was eventually broken to open and read the, the words of the covenant, right? But it doesn't mean that we are sealed, that something means that, you know, we are sealed for eternity because we have God's Holy Spirit. And especially it says sealed with what? And there is the answer. What does it say, Holy Spirit? It's the promise. What's the promise of the new covenant? Eternal life. We have better promise than the new covenant. The better promise is more than an Israel had through their covenant. What you have the better promise of the Holy Spirit is that God guarantee that if we make it to the end, we'll have eternal life. Yeah, That's what it means. Yeah, I was uh, going to make another point here. Mm-hmm. Uh, in uh, Hebrews 3, we went there. Let me, uh, let me catch up to you. Hebrews 3, you went to verse 7? Yes. Uh, if you go back to verse 1, mm-hmm. Hebrews 3, verse 1, mm-hmm. he says, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, <clears throat> and consider the, high, the apostle and high priest of our confession, Jesus Christ, who is... Faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses was faithful in all his house. He calls them holy brethren there. Mm -hmm. And if you skip over to verse 12, he just says brethren. Mm -hmm. Like, would Mm -hmm. would you do you think that they might be two different groups? No. uh, Again, you know, when I address you, sometimes I call you Ray. Sometimes I call you brother Ray. Are you two different people? We're emotional beings. And, and here he is speaking to brethren that he loves deeply, that he's concerned about. And so for emphasis in one place he's saying holy brethren, in another place he's saying brethren, we have to knock out this Gnostic idea of two audiences or three different types of human beings. This is Gnosticism, and, and it, it has been uh, angling to get into the church even while the apostles were alive. And it successfully has penetrated the church. And we have to come back to the true religion. And the truth that we, we can't have this mindset, Ray, it's very, very uh, dysfunctional, it's very unhealthy. For me to come into the church believing, I'm, tr- I'm one of the true brethren, but I'm looking at you suspiciously. And I really don't believe that you have the Holy Spirit. I think you're a marginalized brother. So I'll, I'll fellowship with you, but I'm suspicious of you. Mm-hmm. We, th- this is dysfunctional. We have to come into the fellowship as a fellowship and I will die for everybody here because you're all true brethren now there may be tares amongst us that's God's business but the brethren are the brethren and it's very dangerous for us to try to separate brethren that there are some that are real and some that are kind of not quite committed yet and this is this is Gnosticism would you agree then that uh, as long as you're drawing breath there's still a chance to repent and God will forgive you. As long as you're living, is there still a chance that you can fall down in utter repentance and be forgiven by God? I, I would like to say that. The, the warning in Hebrews seems to indicate that you can harden your heart to a level where you reach a point of no return. And so the warning seems to be, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. So, so it seems like there's a hardening that can set in, mm-hmm. that you, you become immune. Well, the, uh, the reason why I say that is because uh, we're, uh, we seem to be interpreting Hebrews 6, 4 to 6, as when you walk away from the faith, that's it. You're, you know, you're going to be burned. That's it. There's no, there's no hope for you. Is that what you believe? Well, I don't, I don't know if we're interpreting. We're trying to go back to the uh, original context, mm-hmm. and we're trying to understand it the original context. Once we understand the original context, then I think you're right. Then, then we begin to ask these other questions. Okay, how does that apply to our day today? 
But let's first understand the original context. Mm -hmm. And the original context was the Hebrews, not the Gentiles, the Hebrews were faltering. And they were being subjected to a level of persecution that they were beginning to fool themselves into thinking that they could reject Christ, go back to Judaism, and everything would still be okay. And the message Mm -hmm. here was you cannot do this. If you reject Christ, it's over. So your question now is more of a modern context to say, you know, today we have people who might walk out of this church today, go for 10, 12, 15 years without God, mm-hmm. and then suddenly say, what am I doing? The prodigal son. Prodigal uh, son comes and, to and, mind. And yeah. turn around and come yeah. back. It comes to mind. Yes. Yeah. Because I don't believe the father is a harsh God. Uh, that no, way, and no. and in the prodigal son, it shows how loving and uh, forgiving the father was, and I believe that's a, uh, a symbolism of the, the whole uh, God the Father. But remember, Hebrews, the, the, the Paul is saying here, God swore in His wrath that they shall not enter My rest. So, so there's a way. There's a way that God sees His covenant, and when it's trampled, God is an emotional God. Mm-hmm. And he swore in his wrath mm-hmm. that they shall not enter his rest. And the apostle here is taking that as analogous to the situation that these Hebrews find themselves in. Mm-hmm. And that whatever it is they were doing, or wherever it is they were heading, he was saying, be careful. Because God could swear in his wrath that it's over for you. Mm-hmm. Now, again, we need to get our head around the original context. And once we've grasped it, then we can begin to say, okay, now what's the global application of this? But I don't think we've fully grasped this yet. What I wanted to do today is to absolutely reject Greek philosophy, reject Gnosticism, reject Aristotle and Augustine and Calvin and Arminius. These guys are, are absolute geniuses, but they, live in dark, they lived in darkness. They had, it's like a supercomputer. Garbage in, supercomputing, and garbage out. Mm -hmm. That's what these guys are. Mm -hmm. What I want us to do is have a Hebrew perspective of the scripture and to look at the scripture through covenant. I'm not saying I have the full answer, but I know that's not it. Okay. I don't want to take up too much time. I think Murray's behind me, but can I read just one thing? Sure. This is from uh, the Complete Jewish Bible. I just want to read how 4 and 6 reads from, a, I guess, a Jewish perspective. And, and what kind of Jewish? Because uh, Ph- Philo was a Jew, and he is a culprit. Yeah, I'm not sure. So well, let's be sure what kind of Jew. Yeah. Uh, it says, For when people have been once enlightened, tasted the heavenly gift, become sharers in the Ruah HaKodesh, and tasted the goodness of God's word and the powers of the Olam Haba, uh, and, and then have fallen away. It, it is impossible to renew them so that they turn from their sin. And this is where they kind of give a different slant on it. It says, as long as they keep executing the son on the stake over and over again, it almost seems like what they're saying here, how they see it, is, is that if you, if you walk away, if you keep uh, sinning and you keep uh, disregarding the law and disregarding uh, the teachings and everything, if you keep doing it, then there's no hope for you if you keep doing it. But if you, if you like I said before, uh, as long as you're drawing breath, can't you repent? Isn't that the way it should be? Uh, again, what I will say is um, I would like to say yes, but we're looking at some scripture here that says very clearly there's something that's impossible for God to do while people are still alive. I think the hardness in the, of the heart is God's determination on our own. I think Paul is warning us to look in the mirror and make sure our hearts, our hearts don't harden, not to look and say, is that mm-hmm. guy's heart hardened, is that guy's mm-hmm. heart hardened. We bring the prodigal son into place. Um, the father was just waiting. 
maybe he was assuming his son, would, his heart was going to stay hardened, but he was going to keep his eye out because if, if there was ever a hope, then he would, then he would just open his doors. Mm-hmm. Uh, but God determines hardness. Mm-hmm. Um, as a, to answer Ray's point from my perspective, as Christians and as brothers and sisters, I'm going to, I would like to assume that the people that, let's use for an example, the people that left in 1995, Somebody could come back. Mm-hmm. You know, our doors are wide open. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Are their hearts hardened? I don't have no I know. idea. Because that's, that's, right. that's, that, that's, that's for God to. Very As good. human beings here, we're, Very good. Our, hearts, our doors are open. And we will simply be here for them. And, uh, and if, God, if someone walks in whose God has determined that their hearts are hardened, that's his, that's yeah. his prerogative and we'll simply serve. Yeah. Very good. Um, very good. And I, I really appreciate that, uh, Murray. And what I don't like about what the, the Jews have done there I guess these are Messianic Jews in that interpretation. Um, I don't like that they are interpreting it for modern application without first getting grounded in the actual context. So, so what I would want to do is let's work hard to understand what, and I really do, I'm 99.9% sure of this, that it's Paul. And I, I, I will go so far as to say um, I think something's up when all of a sudden all these modern intellects, if you say it's anybody else but Paul, you get a thumbs up. If you say it's Paul, you're an imbecile. I'm kind of wondering about that. But he basically is saying here, I'm not going back to ABCs because it's impossible for people who've rejected God. They've, they've They've been a part of us and they've rejected God. I'm not chasing after them. Because they've broken the covenant and it's impossible to renew them. So I'm going to deal with you. And we're going to go on to the meat. This really happened. This is an authentic letter. So let's try to understand what actually happened here. And then once we've got it, then we can ask ourselves, okay, how does this apply to us? Because it might not. And one of the things that kind of irks me is when Christians, us, believers, take a scripture, we have no idea what it meant. Women should be silent in the church. And then we start beating up women saying, you can't talk. Well, wait a minute. Let's go back and understand what is the context and what really happened. And only when we understand that, then let's ask ourselves, okay, what does that mean for us today? So, so all I'm uh, basically pleading with us is saying, let's try to understand this as it was delivered. Once we've got that, and it was Hebrews talking to Hebrews, so let's get that mindset. Once we've got that, then let's ask ourselves, what does it mean for today? Maybe we conclude it doesn't mean anything today. Maybe it was just specific for that time. You know, women with uh, head covering. Maybe that was specific for that culture in that time. So there's, there's a difference between descriptive and prescriptive. So they might just be describing something. You know, when you come, bring my cloak. Oh, everywhere we go, we've got to take a cloak for somebody. Bring a cloak for the minister, because that was prescriptive. No, it wasn't. It was descriptive. So that's, that's really what I'm saying here is, before we start trying to figure out what it means for us today, let's exert our energy to understand what it meant for the Hebrews, speaking to the Hebrews. And then, when we've got that, let's see what it means for us today. This has been a podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. We hope you are blessed by it. To find out more about CGI Burlington, visit our website at cgiburlington.org.